Welcome to Our Social Impact. This is Dirk Van Velzen, and I'm Executive Director of the Prison Scholar Fund, where we have a mission of providing education and employment assistance to help incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of incarceration. Today we have Sarah Gad at the University of Chicago Law School. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks, Dirk. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great having you. So we met at a really interesting place. So I think the reason you popped up on my radar at this Congressional Pell Grant hearing is you asked a really great question that kind of stumped the panel. Let's talk about that. What did you ask and, and why? Um, so the hearing was about restoring access to Pell Grants for prisoners so that they can pursue higher education while they're incarcerated. Um, and I, I fully support restoring access to Pell Grants for prisoners. I think that we, we should be taking a more rehabilita rehabilitative approach to our criminal justice system. And they were talking about all of these great things that come with um, the prospect of education and correctional facilities. But what I couldn't wrap my mind around was how these prisoners would be able to leave jail or prison and be able to utilize their education or the skills. Um, well, the hearing that we were at was about, like you said, restoring access to Pell Grants and correctional facilities. Um, and I think that's a great idea. I mean, we know that when we make educational programs available to prisoners, um, that it you know, helps rehabilitate them, which should be the, the focus of our criminal justice system. I don't think it was ever the plan to lock somebody up in a cage for 10 years and think that when they came out of that cage, they're going to be in better shape to function in society. So, you know, the Pell Grant was taken back, away back from prisoners in 94 during the tough on crime, war on drug days. It stripped um, prisoners the ability to access higher education and correctional facilities. Um, and at this hearing, they were discussing the possibility of restoring Pell Grant access to prisoners, which I think is great and I 100% support and stand behind. But the question I asked was, how can we ensure that these prisoners are able to leave jail and then use the education that they obtained while in jail or prison when there are so many barriers to the reentry process. I mean, I think there are about 44,000 collateral consequences nationwide that prevent people who were formerly incarcerated from being able to reintegrate back into society. Um, it keeps them from finding jobs. It keeps them from qualifying for affordable housing or really any housing for that matter. And when you aren't able to access you know, uh, housing or employment, then how do you put that education to use? There's just so many ways a criminal record you know, really handicaps you in society. So you really think about, hey, you, you commit a crime, you go to you know, prison, you kind of pay your debt to society, so to speak. And when you get out, it's time to start over. Yeah. But it's really hard to start over if, A, you can't have fine housing. So many employers have criminal record background checks. Now, granted, some states are doing great jobs. I think in Seattle, we have banned the box for college admissions and also for uh, housing. But then you have to get a job. How are you going to get a job when most employers screen for background checks? 
Yeah, exactly. And the reason why I asked that question was because I went to jail um, and I went into jail with a college degree. I was actually in medical school at the time I was incarcerated. And when I got out, I couldn't find a job. And so I was wondering, just based on my own experience of already having a college degree in professional school under my belt, I mean, it was incredibly hard for me to find a job and get back on my feet when I got out of jail. So I can't, I couldn't imagine how hard it must be for somebody who's in jail who just received like an associate's degree or even a bachelor's degree. Um, I mean, I, I couldn't find a job, period. Nobody would give me a chance. So I eventually took the only job that was offered to me, which was an overnight clerk at 7-Eleven, making less than $9 an hour. And so... So let's rewind a little bit and tell me how you got to prison in the first place. Like, what was your... Well, I never went to prison. I went to jail. Okay. Um, so, so for the listeners that don't know, jail is less than a year. Prison is a year or more. Yeah. In jail, it's for pretrial detainees, um, people who have not yet been convicted and who can, can't afford to pay their bail or bond, um, or people who have been convicted and sentenced to one year or less of confinement. Um, but I ended up in jail in 2013 because, um, like I said, I was in medical school. Um, Where were you studying at that time? I was in Pennsylvania. Um, I was at a great medical school. I was um, midway through my third year. I had passed my boards. Everything was going great. I was... Um, You're al almost at the end. Yeah, uh, almost at the home stretch. You know, I had worked really hard to get into medical school and... Um, I did really well on my boards. Uh, your step one boards is perhaps the most important um, grade that you'll get in medical school. And that's kind of what determines how competitive you are as an applicant when you're applying for a residency. But um, during my third year, I was in a severe car accident. Um, I woke up in a hospital bed with multiple broken bones. My ankle actually had to be hammered and screwed back into place. So you can imagine that the pain was pretty excruciating. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent the next year um, having to essentially learn how to walk and talk again. I had a, comp a compound fracture in my distal fibula, which is like my one of your ankle bones. Um, and I had to have multiple surgeries on it. It was it was agonizing, and I I wish I had known that when I was in medical school, so I could have been able to better empathize with patients that I was working with. Um, but yeah, so um, the recovery process was long and brutal. Like I was, I spent the next year learning how to just walk and speak again. Um, I was watching all my classmates, you know, graduate onto their fourth year and start picking medical schools and here I was in a skilled nursing facility essentially relearning how to walk and talk and um, I was being prescribed opioids for the pain but my emotional torment 
kind of went unattended, so I began relying on my opioids to soothe my emotional pain. And were these like Oxycontins or Percocets? I was prescribed, um, you know, Percocet, um, Oxycontin together, and then my tolerance would go up, so they adjust my dose. And, um, I mean, by the end, I think my very last prescription was for crazy amount it was like 90 uh tablets of 40 milligram oxycontins and like 180 10 milligram percocets it's just like wow an absurd that's that's a lot but my doctors were pretty liberal in their prescribing because they thought i was because i was a medical student that i somehow understood or would be able to prevent myself from becoming addicted but it's not something that you can prevent once you're going down that path i i wasn't aware that i had a genetic predisposition to this disease i later did when i found out other members of my family had struggled with um substance abuse disorders addiction is a disease regardless of your drug of choice even alcoholism it's the same exact disease the same part of your brain that's affected the power of Addiction comes from the way in which it hijacks the part of your brain that's essentially the control center, your prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex is responsible for judgment, self-control, planning, decision-making, executive functioning. That part of your brain becomes literally hijacked by this disease and you can actually see on neuroimaging studies that in the brain of an addict the prefrontal cortex starts to degenerate it atrophies so when you actually have the control center of your brain physically withering away you're not going to have a means for self-control it's like actually biologically affecting your brain yeah there's it's it's um it's kind of a complex sort of neuropathophysiology uh, that happens when a person becomes addicted to a particular substance um but it really is a disease it's it's yeah it's people often overlook the fact that addiction is a disease it's genetic it's chronic it's progressive it's relapsing and it's fatal when it's left untreated you get to this point where you're actually, and I mean this literally, physically incapable of avoiding your drug of choice. I was physically incapable of avoiding opioids. Like my body was telling me that I needed them. And another part of the neurobiological equation is that opioids, they act on it's called your uh, mesolimbic pathway, which is the reward center of your brain. So dopamine is the happy uh, neurotransmitter. It makes, it's what makes you feel happy after a good meal. Or somebody likes your Facebook post. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get like a dopamine-like high. Get, it makes you little, happy. Get a little dose. And the reason why you even have that system is for survival. So when you eat something, your body releases, your, your brain releases dopamine. And that makes you feel happy. And then that, you know, in turn makes you want to seek out food again. Because it, it's 
it's reinforcing. You, you start to associate food with happiness, and then you're more likely to engage in activities that are necessary for survival. So even when you have sex, your body releases dopamine because it's also necessary, I guess. Yeah, from an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah. yeah. So when you have drugs that are acting on the same reward pathway that is only used for survival behaviors, your brain suddenly starts to believe that you need these drugs to survive and, I guess, programs you to act accordingly. And so opioids release between two to ten times more dopamine than any natural behavior that also triggers dopamine release. So your brain imputes a lot of significance to these drugs and you're, I guess, programmed in such a way that you feel like you need them just as much as you need water, food, or air. Yeah, and that, that's the part that's really fascinating for me is like, if, if we're all kind of biologically similar and our brains are geni- you know, chemically similar, how some people respond to this in a different capacity and some people like myself who like, I had some fun with the ecstasy, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't fall down the, the, the slippery slope of you know, doing meth in a trailer <laughs> at yeah. four in the morning with floodlights. Yeah, I mean, you'd be amazed at how many people actually suffer from a substance abuse disorder, but um, in the world of addiction, they call the point of no return criminalization. Once you've been criminalized for your addiction, it becomes astronomically more difficult to get out of your addiction. It becomes a revolving door cycle of you go to jail, you get released, you relapse, end up back in jail, released, relapse, end up back in jail. Sometimes they make you go to rehab, but unfortunately that cycle usually ends in either overdose or prison for opioid addicts. For opioid addicts in particular, incarceration is extremely dangerous. Um, In more ways than one. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, when you force abstinence on a person, that doesn't automatically erase, erase their addiction. So when you put somebody in jail because they committed a so-called crime to obtain their drug of choice, putting them in jail doesn't address, it addresses the, the drug offense, but it doesn't address the underlying contributors to that offense. It doesn't address, you know, the disease itself that's causing you to act this way. So the actual figure is that 95% of people with a drug addiction who are incarcerated will relapse. I mean, that's a problem. It's an untreated thing, yeah. I mean, drug, especially opioid use in prisons, it's a problem because, you know, drugs come into the prisons, but needles are few and far between in jails and prisons. So there's a lot of shared needle use. And so um, 
HIV and hepatitis C transmission rates soar for opioid addicts who have been incarcerated. At the same time, uh, drugs are available in jail, but they're not guaranteed. Like if, you know, if you get lucky, somebody will smuggle some in and, and share with people or sell them. But And that's why the price is so high. Yeah. So. Um, and because they're so few and far between, like people are engaging in really risky behaviors to um, get high. We have to constantly remind ourselves in society that this is a disease. It is not a choice. There is no addict that I have ever met, and I can speak from personal experience, this is not a choice. Like, I would never have chosen to, to lose out on medical school, to throw all of my dreams out the window, to become a convicted criminal who has been permanently demoted to second-class citizenship and be and be denied and deprived of opportunities for the rest of my life. I would not have chosen this path for myself if I had a choice. It's just unfortunate that during my recovery process from my accident, I was taking opioids for so long that it was enough to trigger that part of my DNA to become active and turn me into an addict. I think it's like 80% of people with opioid addictions, it starts with a legal prescription and an injury. Oh, yeah, so before we finish that, that thought, I, I was going to jump in on what, something you said about the, having you know, medical attention in a prison is a legal right. Yeah. Uh, even though that's probably true, there are so many barriers to getting that medical attention while you're in prison. There's, there's so many cases about people being ignored, they die in prison. And like in one of my cases, uh, I ended up having MRSA. And it took me a couple of days to, you know, I kind of just tough, I try to tough a lot of things out. So I was kind of toughing this out. Everyone that saw it said, dude, your leg's fucked up. <laughs> you better go to medical. And so I, I, so I, I finally decided I, I need to go to medical. And that's not an easy process. You, you send in these kites, they ignore your kites, and the kites are just little pieces of paper where you communicate with whoever you want to communicate with. So after a week, they're, uh, they've always just ignored me. And the way a prison works in California is like after, after a meal or after yard or after day room, they tell you to lock up. And so my only recourse was to refuse to lock up. And at that point, they either come out and they, they pepper spray you, they threaten to shoot you with a block gun, or they take you to segregation. They do something major. It's like because you're violating a major rule because it's almost like they view it as an escape if you don't lock up. So finally, I just stayed in the day room and said, hey, uh... <laughs> I'm not locking up. You know, either take me to medical or shoot me or pepper spray me, whatever you want to do. I'm going to medical one way or the other. So there was like a standoff for two hours in the day room. Then they finally relented. They take me to medical. Sure enough, the doctor lances it and gives me some meds. And when the doctor sees it, he's like, oh, oh, my God. <laughs> we yeah. caught this just in time. You know, so, it's, you know, you can't just walk to the doctor and say, hey, I, I have this condition. Can you help? It is so hard to get any treatment when you're actually you know, a prisoner with yeah. very, very little movement or rice. When I was first arrested, um, in tw it was November of 2013. Um, it was it was here in Chicago. I was um, arrested for um, pre presenting a false prescription 
um, at a pharmacy trying to fill a false prescription at a Walgreens and they um, they called the police and this goon squad of like six police officers just came marching into the store and I knew they were there for me um, and I mean it was yeah, I mean it was just that was the end of the uh that that was that's that was the moment that was the point of no return so i get um thrown in the cook county jail and they're overcrowded so they put me in maximum security now mind you i'm a, a minimum security nonviolent first time offender and they place me in maximum security and, and, I mean, and how did that go I mean, well, the Cook County Jail is known for being one of the worst jails in the country, one of the most notoriously violent, both um, as far as the inmates and correctional officers are known to participate in the abuse of inmates. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was uh, sexually assaulted, and when I reported that I was sexually assaulted... um, was that by the guards or the other Yeah, other I thought inmates? the correctional officer was going to at least separate us or put me in a different pot or send the perpetrator to solitary confinement and slap them with some new charges. But that's not how it went. Um, they, the correctional officer actually told the inmate that had raped me that I had snitched on her. So I'm sure you know what happens when you are labeled a snitch in jail or prison. And so I, after word got back to the girl who raped me, her and her friends, um, took me under the stairs and just beat the hell out of me. It was horrifying. And then, and then they yeah, denied me medical. That. No, terrible. it's, I mean, it, it's, it's why I'm still here today fighting so hard for criminal justice reform because of my experience. It was so unnecessarily traumatic. I mean, even after I was beaten, I was denied access to medical care. And then my sisters came to visit me in the jail because it was Thanksgiving weekend and they didn't want me to spend it alone. And they saw that I had like blood streaming down my face, like I was all black and blue I was limping and I have a sister who's a doctor and a sister who's a human rights attorney and so when they see the condition I'm in they were mortified like how are you letting her walk around looking like this why hasn't anybody given her medical attention like what the hell is wrong with you guys well so what they do next is they move me to a different pod um the sergeant she um, she told me to come pack my things. She was taking me to a new pod. Instead of maximum security, I'd be going to medium max, um, where there were also violent offenders. But the way she phrased it was that there will be some junkies like myself. So when we arrive on this new pod, I think it was called you know, like K2, um, she brought me into the unit. And, you know, every time a white shirt comes onto the unit, a white shirt is like a sergeant or a lieutenant or one of the higher level jail staffs. Um, When there's a problem, somebody says, well, you should go speak to a white shirt. 
but the white shirt in my case was causing all the problems. She took me onto this new pod, and I thought, finally, I'm going to be safe from, you know, the woman on the other pod who, who I had, I guess, snitched on. But the sergeant, she takes me into the new pod and makes a public service announcement and actually says, I'm here to make a public service announcement. And the public service announcement was that nobody talked to me because I am a snitch. And if I do, I'm going to tattle to my sisters and basically just set me up to <laughs> just be thrown to the wolves. So That's after terrible. Yeah. So after that, yeah, for the people that don't know, being like a sex offender or a snitch is the worst thing you can be in prison because you have no friends. And I was naive because I'd never been in jail before. Yeah. I was a nonviolent offender. I'd never had any friends that had been to jail. I was not familiar with the culture or even the saying that snitches get stitches. And by the way, when I was stabbed, I did not get stitches. <laughs> um, but <laughs> a yes. Bu a butterfly bandage? It, it, no, I was thrown in solitary confinement. It healed up on its own. Uh, uh, but on this new pod, once I had this reputation of being a snitch, it was. It became routine for me to get beaten. There was some. There were some alliances between pods. So some of the women on my pod knew the woman who had sexually assaulted me and they had snitched on. So out of allegiance to her, they took it upon themselves to teach me a lesson. So they would beat me and one occasion they stabbed me. I've, I have a foreign stab wound or scar in my thigh from that. And I actually passed out from the pain. And when I woke up, like when I opened my eyes, all of the inmates were standing around me and a correctional officer. And this correctional officer, I'll never forget this image, is standing over me, eating from a bag of peanut M&Ms as if she's watching a movie. Like I'm just coming <laughs> to it, realizing. That's terrible. I'm laughing, but that's terrible. Yeah, I'm on the bathroom floor of this jail with my pants down, with blood streaming down my leg as I'd just been stabbed. And I'm just completely in a daze. And every time, I mean, I, I didn't even have to say I need medical attention. It was obvious. It would be obvious to a lay person on the street. Yes, this girl needs emergency care. But my sisters came to visit me again that day. And they saw the even worse condition that I was in. They could see the blood through my scrubs. And they started, like, raising hell, threatening litigation, just emailing everybody under the sun, like the mayor, the sheriff, everybody. And this was Thanksgiving weekend. So the jail in retaliation to my sisters, raising hell, they threw me in solitary confinement and revoked my visiting and um, telephone privileges so I couldn't have access to my family anymore. And so I'm in 
a six by eight cell in solitary confinement with a four inch stab wound in my leg that's now infected and four like inch? fenced. Yeah. Oh, I, I just thought it was like a little. No, no. Like a little poke with a pen or something. No, it was with a razor blade. They're going for my face, but. So how they missing out your leg? No, they did get part of my face, uh, just on my eyebrow, but um, yeah, they dug into my thigh. I mean, that's, uh, I have some cuts. I had some cuts, but the biggest one was in my thigh. I mean, it was down to like the subcutaneous layer and it was, it was bad. But after, you know, the, the holidays were over, it was Monday, back to business as usual. That's when the sheriff had received the email from my sister. And so he, he, uh, uh, so, somehow I was just snatched out of solitary confinement, wheeled right to medical. Um, I had been in there for four or five days in solitary. My wound was just completely infected and just gangrenous. But the, the prison doctor still, s still stitched it shut. That's, it's without, like... Without cleaning it all out? I mean, after 24 hours, a wound is contaminated and you're not supposed to stitch it. This was a, like, seven-day-old contaminated, infected wound. They had to, like, excise and cauterize dead tissue. I mean, it's a miracle that, like, I didn't end up having to amputate my leg. But I just, at that point, like, I was just so far gone mentally. Like, I didn't know how I was ever going to come back from that experience. But when I leave jail, the punishment doesn't stop. Like, once you, once you have a drug, or not just a drug conviction, once you have a conviction, period, that becomes a mountainous barrier to everything necessary for any citizen to lead a normal productive life so like i said before i could not find a job i couldn't find a place to live um health care was out of the question like it, somehow they expected you they expect you to leave jail or prison and somehow be able to reintegrate back into society and become a productive, tax-paying, law-abiding citizen while simultaneously depriving you of every option and opportunity to do so. Yeah, like even healthcare, what does that run a month? Well, it was, I, I couldn't afford it. Yeah, I know, like, I know. I, if you could, it was like three, 300, 400 bucks a month. Or do they have discounted rates for low-income people in Chicago? I don't even remember. I don't. I honestly don't but, even remember. I, I just remembered, like, I was focused on paying my court fines so that I wouldn't end up back in jail. Like, I, they had charged me room and board fees, whatever the hell that means, uh, public defender fee or something. I mean, it was just preposterous. And so I took the the only job I could get you know, and it was, it was a shock to my conscience, to say the least. Having gone from a full scholarship to a great medical school, to being rejected from places like as a cashier at Home Depot or Target, or even sweeping floors at Great Clips, like the only job I could find was working as an overnight clerk at a 7-Eleven. 
that was not i mean how'd that go it's all i had but it wasn't enough to keep a roof over my head or pay basic utilities or my court fines like i had to take out credit cards and like just to pay my utilities and for food and my rent and pretty soon I maxed out all my credit cards and I was I came to like a breaking point where I was like I can't live like this for the rest of my life I I I couldn't fathom that a person could be discriminated for life because of a past mistake especially when that mistake was made while they were in the throes of a disease like addiction I mean when I was incarcerated so many of the women who were in there with me, and there were some wonderful people in there that I met. I mean, just normal people who made a mistake and got caught. I mean, pretty much everyone has done something in their life that warrants jail time, but few of them get caught. Like, yeah, like a, a study came out of Berkeley <laughs> I'm not really sure how they did their research, but they decided that 92% of all Americans have done something that would get them to prison. You know, as we know, prison's different than jail. That's a year and a day. So that's a pretty serious sentence. So those people just didn't get caught or they had really good legal representation to keep them out of prison. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like when, when I went to prison, I had a, a misconception of what prison was. I thought I was going to gladiator school. Is it going to be this terrible place? And of course it is in a lot of ways. But um, you also realize a lot of the people you're doing time with are just just regular guys. They made a mistake. Yeah. And they shouldn't really need uh, 20 years in prison. Yeah. I mean, they were just... I mean, when I was on maximum security, um, I was with a lot of violent offenders, so to speak. Some of them had been convicted, and they were um, just waiting to be transported <clears throat> to what they call the joint uh, prison. But even even when I was in maximum security, like there were some people who were very abusive towards me, but there were others who were kind. Like a woman who um, she'd given me some bandages that she had to cover up some of like my wounds or, um, you know, like the humanity was there and you start to see that this label of criminal is I mean it's just very inaccurate it's people who have made mistakes like we all have and usually that mistake was made in a position of desperation or disadvantage or like myself when I was in the throes of a disease. Like before my addiction, I had never broken the law. And when I, when I overcame my addiction, never broken the law. It was only when I was an addict or when, when I was actively using because our lawmakers have chosen to make this disease a crime, um, you know, 
that was the extent, I guess, of my criminal history was me operating under the influence of this disease that was making me do things that I never in my, I never would have done if I was in my right mind. And if I had just gotten the treatment that I needed when I needed it, just immediately, I could have spared myself a lot of the trauma that I had experienced. Uh, you know, I could have spared myself the loss of my dream, which is to be a doctor. I mean, and one bad decision or mistake shouldn't follow you for the rest of your life and keep you from being able to reintegrate back into society in a meaningful way and contribute positively to society. All I wanted was just a chance, like a second chance to do something meaningful with my life. Like I wanted, I wanted a purpose that would make me excited to wake up in the morning the way I felt when I was in medical school knowing that my day was going to be dedicated to taking care of people. Like it gave me a sense of purpose that I didn't have after, you know, I, my, my dreams of being a doctor just kind of went out the window because of my addiction and sort of the criminalization that followed. Um, but the third time I was arrested, it was for five days, and I got out, and I ended up overdosing. Um, my dad was the one who found me, called 911, and I was, um, they reversed my overdose with Narcan, um, and brought me to the hospital. And even then, I was texting my drug dealer, saying, please come to the hospital and bring me drugs. I mean, this was after I just overdosed and narrowly escaped my own death. Um, and then this addiction medicine fellow stops by my room and starts talking to me about something called medication-assisted treatment. And I was skeptical because I had even done a 28-day inpatient stint at the Hazel and Betty Ford Clinic, which is the best treatment center in the world. And that wasn't enough to, I guess stop my addiction in its tracks but he told me about this medication it was called suboxone and that it would ease my withdrawal symptoms and help with the cravings and I was just like yes give me anything to get rid of these withdrawal symptoms like any other disease it responds to treatment and medication and not not deterrence like jail time or oh we're gonna lock you up if you if you drop dirty your addiction yeah, still cooking it's your brain that's that's governing this and it's 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 not like something you can stop on a volitional level um if you can then you, you're either like really strong-willed and I, i've I've never met somebody who's been able to just stop cold turkey and just be sober forever. I got started on Suboxone. I was trying to rebuild my life. It was fortuitous that I had met this attorney. Um, she's a very well-known civil rights and wrongful convictions attorney in Chicago. 
And she saw that I needed help getting back on my feet, but she also saw that I had a lot of untapped potential. I had three years of medical knowledge under my belt from a great institution, <laughs> like a great medical school. And it was just not being put to use. So she invited me to come work at her firm as just a temporary research um, clerk. It was supposed to be part-time, temporary, me doing menial tasks around the office. But part-time in law firm, is that's pretty good money, probably. I mean, I, it's not like I was paid a fortune, <laughs> but it was, money. it was a hell of a lot, a lot better than eight twenty-five an hour. Um, and I really thrived. Like, one of the first cases, so I was doing mostly med-mal cases. Med-mal practice? Yeah, okay. yeah, because... I mean, that's where my background was most relevant. And we worked on this case where this guy, um, he had had like an ambulatory knee surgery. And after that surgery, he, he was dead three months later. And nobody could figure out what happened, why this man died from this routine ambulatory same-day surgery. Just inpatient, outpatient, just whatever you just yeah. treat, treat and yeah. release. Yeah, and so none, nobody could figure out what happened to this guy. And so she was like, well, if you want to take a stab at it, go ahead. <laughs> go for it. See what you find out. But anyway, so yeah. after I had discovered why <laughs> that, that the guy had died, um, it was, I think it was, it was in the firm for like three weeks at that point. You, I was, you're the resident legal uh, medical expert. Yeah, I was appointed to the firm's like science director, and then I started um, my my uh, I became a full time employee, overseeing all of like the scientific testing and research, um, medical research for all her cases. So after a really interesting place at a uh, Zellner's law firm, it sounds like you moved on and. Yeah, um, after working for her for two years, I mean, she's an attorney with a great reputation in Chicago, um, very well known, very well respected. And so to have someone like me, that vouching for me and my character and saying I've had this, I've had a, this person working for my law firm for two years and she's done X, Y, Z. Um, and contributed to the disposition of many of my cases, um, that kind of, I guess, tipped the balance back in favor of me not being the scum of society, like I was viewed because of my criminal record before working for her. You're a drug addict, ex-felon. And then that was, I was very lucky that I had someone like that who was willing to take a chance on me to give me an opportunity to show that I'm still capable of contributing to society in a positive way and I want to. Like All I wanted was just to find a way to get back on my feet and just live a happy, normal, productive life. The way our criminal justice system is designed, it's designed for you to fail. It's, it's a system of destruction is what it really is. There's nobody who goes into the system 
who comes out better than when they started. Anybody who goes through the criminal justice system leaves in a far worse position than when they went in. And I, that was my case. It didn't matter that I had gone to a great medical school. It didn't matter that I had graduated from college with you know, high honors. It didn't matter that I had volunteered in Kenya during a civil war done a lot of service work at my own volition before all this happened and it's not like you get good samaritan points to balance out a criminal record like your criminal record nullifies everything in your past and becomes a barrier to everything in your future <laughs> and a lot of times people just need a second chance but they don't get them very often and i was one of the very very few who was blessed with a second chance. And I wanted to use that second chance to make it easier for other people to succeed and have second chances. I decided that law school was going to be the next chapter, not because I wanted to practice law, but because I wanted to learn how to change the law, learn about how laws were made, learn about the inner workings of the criminal justice, the criminal justice system and how to essentially dismantle them. Um, so I applied to law school all over the country. Um, I didn't know how they were going to receive me. I guess having been to jail and having a drug addiction isn't exactly a winning law school personal statement. <laughs> but I was actually received very well, and I was very surprised. Um, I wanted to stay in and just stay in my community, the same community that welcomed me with open arms when I was trying to get back on my feet. Um, and so I wanted to use my second chance to give that to others. And so people will always say to me that my story is very, um, inspirational or it's so unique but I honestly think it should be normal I don't think it should be such a shocker that somebody's been to jail and is now successful like I yeah. was working with Kathleen Zellner I had been working with her I think it was like a year and a half when I discovered that there was a warrant for my arrest from like 2015 for that I didn't even know about and they and I was volunteering in a jail at that point and when I went <laughs> into that jail to volunteer did they I let was, you out yeah they oh, yeah, did yeah. eventually they, I mean uh, they weren't supposed to I mean the judge let me out um that he was technically supposed to keep me in so they could extradite me back to where the the county the warrant was in but the judge just released me, and then I hired an attorney, and just I had to get the motion quashed. But I still had to deal with it. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, in the aftermath, like, I had been clean. I, I don't like the word clean. I had been off of opioids. I had a law-abiding, stable, productive life for myself. Now, I can imagine after all of this, that must be traumatic. Like, not knowing if you're going to go back to prison yeah, is even worse than going in the first place. Every time now I leave my apartment... 
Like, I know now that I'm living a law-abiding life. I'm doing good. I'm helping others. The only thing our criminal justice system is doing by holding people like me back is disservicing the community that would otherwise be benefiting from the work that I do. It doesn't, it doesn't help anybody. It's entirely punitive and counterproductive. So we need to end this war and shift our focus from the fail supply side to more effective demand harm reduction strategies. Things like expanding access to substance abuse treatment. Things like, you know, legalizing safe consumption sites because if people are going to do it anyway, they might as well do it in such a way that they aren't transmitting, you know, communicable diseases like hepatitis C and HIV. And they're doing it in such a way that they're not at risk of overdosing because there's an naltrexone kit nearby. I mean, I think that we really need to just end this failed war, the war we've already lost, concede to defeat, declare our exit strategy, and make harm reduction the cornerstone of U.S. drug policy. I was reading about the study that they did in Rhode Island where they gave inmates access to medications like Suboxone and Methadone, and the overdose rate went down substantially when inmates were given these medications throughout their period of incarceration. Not only did it reduce overdose rates, it reduced recidivism rates, relapse rates. I mean, just nothing bad could be said about expanding access to medication-assisted treatment in correctional facilities. I had all these friends who were dying because they got out of jail and relapsed, which is, like I said, 95% of people do. Wow. So, so why, why are the and facilities so, not using the Suboxone? I mean, most of these decisions come from, like, county administrators. Um, they don't come from anybody with any sort of medical training. Um, Oh, is it more expensive than other treatments? They, uh, there's different reasons given. Funding concerns is a common one that we get. Um, and just, well, I'll, I'll get into that. Um, so I, I had this idea, why don't we start making these medications available in all correctional facilities? And so I went to the convention, presented my idea. Uh, I learned that Bill Clinton had actually lost a number of... Uh, his close friends had lost children to opioid overdoses and he was felt very strongly about the issue so they had this little opioid um, advisory panel where they invited a few students in whose whose proposals were related to tackling the opioid crisis so i presented um my story in that discussion room and i talked about my experience overdosing when I got out of jail and how lucky I was to have survived that and how I had so many friends who were not that lucky. Women who did not realize that when they got out of jail, their risk of overdosing had skyrocketed for a number of reasons or who fentanyl found their way into their heroin. 
and they agreed to help me um, fund a, a pilot study um, in a correctional facility and set me up with the resources and tools to start a nonprofit that not only helps make these medications available in correctional facilities through subsidies or um, connections with pharmaceutical companies that they had. Um, so I started a nonprofit called Addiction to Action, and we've been able to get um, medication-assisted treatment into um, correctional facilities in seven states um, till this point. And the aggregate data that we've seen so far shows that overdose rates have dropped post-release by between 61 and 75%. So still about 99% of jails do not provide these medications. And there are a number of reasons why. Some jails and prisons say they prefer abstinence. They think that's the morally correct approach, even though it's the medically just completely irresponsible approach. <laughs> but another problem is that it's very hard to find physicians who can actually prescribe these medications in order to be able to prescribe Suboxone to an opioid addict, a doctor has to undergo eight hours of additional training, take a test, receive appropriate certification, pay fees, and there's already this negative stigma when it comes to addicts in the medical profession. So that most doctors aren't gonna wanna take the extra step to go through this training, receive this waiver, subject themselves to random DEA audits where the DEA is going to storm into their office while they're seeing patients and start rifling through their records to make sure that they're following all the protocol. And, and even the, the 3% of doctors who do have this waiver where they can pre prescribe Suboxone, there, there's a 100-patient cap. They can only treat 100 patients at a time with Suboxone. There are none of these regulatory constraints for traditional opioids. The medications that are actually getting people addicted, that are actually killing people, causing them an overdo overdose, there are n you don't need a special license to prescribe opioids. You're not limited in the number of patients you can prescribe opioids to. So Suboxone is like a level class two or three? It's a, th it's a, th it's a three. It's so, a so why is there so much regulation on it? Because it, it's still a partial opioid. Yeah. Um, methadone is a Schedule II because it's a full opioid. But So in France, in 1995, they were dealing with their own heroin epidemic. France decided to lift the regulatory constraints on Suboxone. They made it such that every primary care doctor could prescribe Suboxone to a patient with an opioid addiction without any additional training or certification. Just you see an addict in your office, you prescribe Suboxone, send them on their way. In four years, the overdose, the, the national overdose rate went down by 79%. Wow, no just, kidding. Just by having a PCP through which they can access Suboxone through. For any other disease, you would not question whether or not to administer medication. 
And we need to wrap our minds around the fact that addiction is a disease, has all the hallmarks of a disease. It's in your DNA. It's not volitional. It's not like you can choose to be a diabetic anymore. You can choose to be an addict. And think about it. Would you withhold, would you incarcerate a diabetic for eating candy and withhold their insulin from them while they're in jail? Because that's what they're doing to opioid addicts. Throwing them in jail for using the substance that causes them harm, even if they've harmed nobody but themselves. They put them in even greater danger by putting them in jail, forcing abstinence on them, withholding medication that they could otherwise be receiving if they were out on the streets and then setting them loose to die. I mean, I think those are the, the three main things is just expanding access to treatment, lifting federal restrictions on medications used to treat opioid addiction, um, making naltrexone just sort of ubiquitous, and education, raising awareness, destigmatizing it, treating it with compassion, treating it like the disease it is instead of some sort of moral failure. So Sarah, in addition to all of these things you're working on, all these amazing things, I also hear you have a coat drive. What is that all about? Yes, um, I started that about five years ago. Um, it's called Jacket Change. And what we do, well, it started out, um, it was, I think it was 2014. I saw this homeless man walking around in the dead of winter in a t-shirt. And it, it was just shocking. And Chicago is not warm. Yeah, no. <laughs> no I mean. Zero degree. And. Native wind chill. You know, I. I literally just gave him the coat off my back. I was driving by in my car, I had the heat on, and I just saw him shivering in a white t-shirt, and I just could not fathom spending a Chicago winter in a t-shirt. And so I gave him a coat, and he was so grateful and it it just the encounter really moved me and i think once you've experienced true adversity like once you know what it's really like to suffer like f physically mentally emotionally like it just excruciating pain i'm not talking about like suffer through uh, a heartbreak I'm talking about really, really suffering. You develop this sense of, I guess, oh, I don't know if it's, I want to say empathy, but it's the sense of obligation. So once you've really suffered, once you've experienced true adversity and tr like really true suffering, like excruciating physical, mental, psychological pain. You develop this sort of sense of obligation where 
you want to do everything in your power to make sure nobody has to go through that and I mean after my experience in the Cook County Jail I I mean I was tortured I really suffered in there and it kills me to know that there are people suffering even more so than I I did when I was in that situation. If I can do something small to ease someone else's suffering, which I consider walking around in a t-shirt in the dead of winter in Chicago, like being homeless, I, I think that that's like, that's prima facie suffering. I just gave him the coat off my back. But the man I gave the coat to was so grateful. And, and it, was, it was such a simple thing. Like, just, I was giving him a coat. I had more coats at home. Told me that I had just changed his life. And I was just so moved by the experience that I went home and just started digging, rifling through my parents' basement and my closet and just contacting everybody that I knew so I could collect coats and bring it to these shelters, not just drop them off at a donation box at like Goodwill or Salvation Army. I wanted to make sure that these coats were going to the people who needed them directly. And so I started, and from there, I, I decided to start um, an annual coat drive. It's called Jacket Change. Um, and you can visit uh, the site at www.chicagocoats.org. But in the last five years, we've um, collected and donated um, about 3,000 coats to the Chicago homeless community. We partner with local um, like fitness centers and... Um, restaurants and coffee shops they set up donation boxes and I um, will go by once a week and pick them up and um, yeah it's been going really well for the last few years and uh, our goal this year is to outdo ourselves and collect 1500 coats <laughs> wow amazing so um, yeah you're yeah. on fire so after all of this would you ever want to go back, like if you could rewind the clock? And this is kind of something that I thought about a lot, you know, with a lot of time to think about things in prison. Did you ever think about if you could rewind the clock, not do the drugs, or like maybe avoid it some kind of, some kind of different way so that medical school just played out to be your, your history? Would I want to go back? I could probably do without the trauma of the whole experience, like the but do you think that trauma made you stronger today? I th definitely. I think th that because of what I went through, I've become a much more empathetic, grounded, compassionate person. Um, so I would say before all of this, I thought that 
personal fulfillment was contingent upon what I had achieved for myself. And I know this sounds cliche, but now for me, personal fulfillment is helping others to me. And the fact that I was in medical school going to be treating patients, that should have been my mindset, but it wasn't because I hadn't ever really experienced any adversity in life. I mean, I grew up poor. Um, I faced like racial discrimination. Um, my family, my parents are Muslim. So after 9-11, like we were subject to um, racist and religious attacks. I hadn't really experienced true suffering. Now that I know what that's like and how terrible it is, knowing that somebody else is experienced something like what I experienced and quite possibly even worse. I want to be able to do everything in my power to make sure that people don't have to go through such unnecessary, excruciating trauma. So if, if I can find a way to make sure that I can affect change such that other people don't have to experience what I had experienced or suffer through the kinds of things that I've had to suffer through, then I would say, no, I wouldn't go back. Because I think that we have a lot of very competent doctors in this world. I would have loved to have been one of them. But we don't have very many people who really understand what it's like for somebody to be chewed up by the system and spit out and be beaten and abused by the people who are supposed to protect you, be thrown in solitary confinement, which is like being buried alive. But if I can find a way to keep others from experiencing that same trauma and experiencing what I went through, then I think that that will be enough for me. That will be fulfilling enough for me to say that, no, I, I wouldn't go back. I would prefer to stay on this path. That's really great. And, and you know, a few, a few people have that perspective. Most people who go through real adversity come out with a completely different perspective on life and they see the universe differently they just see the world differently and they become much more empathetic and compassionate and aware of what people around them are going through and what's such a shame is that jail in, and prison are such traumatizing places. And most people who've been through the system have been traumatized on some level. And you always see that it's the people who are given the second chances are the ones who always, they're the ones who do amazing things. I have yet to meet somebody who's been convicted of a crime and who's successful 
but their success revolves around helping other people. And I think that if we were to give out more second chances, we would see a lot more people who we continually marginalize actually contributing to society in a positive way. We just don't give them that chance. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful souls, a lot of beautiful souls that are trapped behind bars right now. And we don't get to see what they're capable of. And for the, pe the few people who are given a chance to realize and maximize their potential, people who've been in the system, the people like me and you. I mean, you created a program that pays for other prisoners to go to college because you were given a second chance to do something meaningful with your life, and that's what you did with it. Me, you know, I, you know, I was given a second chance. And that's, actually, you know, really the most kind of eye-opening or shocking or I don't even know the right word for it, but when you're in prison, you're in this terrible environment. And then fortunately for me, I had dad with a checkbook. So yeah. he was able to pay for my tuition. I was going to Penn State. You know, and once education got good to me, I never looked back. And so it really changed my life. I got a couple of degrees when I was incarcerated. I got out. I went to the University of Washington's program. Then I got into a social entrepreneurship program at Stanford. So all these amazing things happened just because I was lucky to have a dad with a checkbook. And if you think about it in one way, like the inherent unfairness of that is just crazy. Yeah. It's like, and there's so many people like, and that's the thing when we get to prison, most of the people in prison are just very similar to you. They're just some guys that made mistakes. For all of these people in prison, there is no opportunity yet. So yeah, we're, I mean, we're working just, on that. They just fall behind. And yeah. the punishment rarely fits the crime these days. I mean, every criminal record is a life sentence unless you, you get it expunged. But even then, it can still come back and haunt you. Yeah. But, I mean, it's just kind of a one-size-fits-all, like, system of punishment. It's lazy. It doesn't take into account people's individual circumstances. And it just, nothing good ever comes out of being in the criminal justice system. Right. We can see the deficiencies in our system that continuously destroy people's lives and allow them to fall through the cracks and in some cases die. And people like you and me are picking up the slack because our government is really failing. Yeah, they took, they took the Pell Grant away in 94. And it's like we only exist because they're not doing their job. Yeah. If I you want to rehabilit rehabilitate prisoners, and that's what you should be doing as a society, then why am I doing it? We're yeah. the only organization in America that does this. Why am I, Why is my organization the one that has to bring life-saving drugs, cheap life-saving drugs, into jails and prisons? Because if we didn't, they w people would be dying at alarming or, rates. Or reoffending. A lot of it comes down to money. The fact that caging human beings is a for-profit enterprise is just absolutely deplorable in my mind. I feel blessed to be in a position where I can finally do something productive and meaningful with my life. But I would not be able to just go on and live my life for myself because 
It's always going to be in the back of my mind, these people that I met, these wonderful people who are struggling because they didn't have a Kathleen Zellner to sort of pick them up and dust them off and, you know, give them some credibility. If we made our system such that people didn't need to know the right people or they didn't need luck to get back on their feet, because I think it should be normal. I think it should be absolutely normal for somebody who's made a mistake in their life to dust themselves off, try again, and go on to be successful. And unfortunately, the way our system is structured right now, it's, it's anomalous for people to actually do that. And I guess I'll just leave you with one story. Um, I actually represent people through my law school's legal clinic. I represent Southside and young adult offenders um, who are in the Cook County um, system. So I actually represent people in the exact same courtroom where I was handcuffed and shackled and the same judge. And I introduced myself as student counsel on behalf of my client. And I asked the <laughs> judge, <laughs> I asked the judge if he remembered me. Uh, are we cool? And he didn't. And I was like, I was, I was in your courtroom in 2013, except I was in an orange jumpsuit and I had um, handcuffs and shackles on. And I'm pretty sure I remember you calling me a danger to society. <laughs> and his face just went white. And he was like, well, I'm glad to see, you know, you, you made it back on your feet. And I was like, what you just said there, that's the entire problem. You're a, a You're sitting shocked. judge. Yeah. You should be, that should be like your goal. You should want people to leave your courtroom and go on to be successful, thrive and succeed. And you know that your job is preventing them from doing that. And that's the problem. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't drain the blood from your face to see somebody return to your courtroom, however many years later, in a position of success. That shouldn't be shocking to a judge. It should be, it should be normal, not necessarily to go to law school and show up in their courtroom representing somebody like that was kind of um I, I admit that's a little bit you know unusual but just the fact that he was shocked that i had become that somebody successful. could succeed somebody yeah and that just says a lot about our criminal justice system right now we don't expect people to leave it and succeed even those administering justice the highest level of our criminal justice system. They've written everybody These judges off. who have the ability to make things easier for that person, they choose not to. They choose to continue the status quo, which is this criminal justice system that's a system of destruction that ruins lives, destroys futures, actually kills people that's the system we currently embrace and enforce and that has to stop sarah gad thank you so much for your time 
I can't wait to see what happens next. Thanks, Dirk. Thanks for having me. And thanks for all the great work that you do. Thank you.